Hello and welcome to the podcast of Britain Christian Church. We exist to be a lighthouse of hope to our community in OKC. Now, here's Pastor Mike. Turn over on the back. You'll be able to see all of the scripture that we're going to take a look at this morning. Also, I wanted to remind you, um, on January the 17th, Wednesday, January the 17th, we'll start a brand new Bible study, uh, a Bible study that I'm going to be leading at 6.30 in the morning for the guys in the Promise Keepers group, and then at 6 p.m. in the evening for anybody that would like to come. You need, if you're going to come, you need this study before our first time together because we're going we're gonna to start the very first night and reading the scripture and looking at the notes. I've got a stack of them, so if you want to see me right after worship this morning, I would love to give you a copy. Uh, before we actually begin, I am... Um, so grateful this morning. My pastor, Dr. Darnell, is here. David, stand up. Edith, stand up. <clears throat> they, um, they all feel like they know you because I talk about you so much. Um, what a blessing to have David and Edith here with us this morning. Every morning before the sun would rise, John would wake up his boys, Simon and Andrew, and head out the door of their home to prepare for another day of fishing on the Sea of Galilee. On the North Shore, they'd meet up with Zebedee and his boys, James and John. Fishing was the family business. It was what they knew, and it was what they loved. Simon never sat around the house in the evening, dreaming about being a preacher one day. Unlike the prodigal son, Simon never yearned for the glitz and glamour of the big city. He was a fisherman. He loved the smell of the sea. He loved the challenge of casting the nets and celebrating with his dad, his brother, and his friends at the end of the day, whether the catch was brought in or not. But all of that changed when Simon met Jesus. Today we're beginning a brand new study of two letters written by the fisherman who became the rock. That's the name that Jesus gave to Simon. And let me tell you, let me tell you how it all happened. You see, Simon's brother Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist, the man who was telling everybody that the Messiah was coming. The Messiah was coming. And Andrew was there that day that John the Baptist said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. Well, Andrew believed John. And so he became a follower of Jesus. And then we read in John chapter 1, the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and to tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, he called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Cephas is an Aramaic word, which means stone or rock. And as we read through the Gospels, we begin to wonder if Jesus might have given Simon the wrong name. Instead of being steady and immovable and unshakable, many have said that Simon Peter was impetuous. Merriam-Webster describes impetuous behavior as impulsive behavior. The impetuous among us act without thinking long and hard about the consequences of their actions. They're rash. They're reckless. And that might be how we could describe Peter at times, and yet Jesus called him the rock. There's a radical difference. 
between the way that we evaluate others and the way that Jesus sees them. We judge others in the moment because of some behavior, and our judgment tends to be final. Jesus sees us for what he will make of us and not some impetuous, foolish decision that we've made in the past. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about by taking a look at the low moment in Peter's life. After Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples, they all went out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus would pray, prepare to be arrested, and then crucified. And while they were making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples that all of them were going to fall away from him. Peter blurted out, they might, but I never will, Lord. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Let's read it together how it actually happened. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Peter was quick to speak up. He would often say things before he thought them through, but there is nothing that he ever said, ever, ever said, that came back to haunt him like the time that he was so bold as to make it known among all the disciples that even if they fell away from Jesus, he would be faithful to the end. Well, it didn't take long for Peter to find out just how wrong he was. In Luke 22, beginning in verse 55, we learn that Peter did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. He claimed that he never even knew Jesus. While Jesus was being interrogated at the house of the high priest, Peter was warming himself on the fire. Read along with me in Luke 22. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Man, can you imagine what that moment was like for Peter? Peter denied that he knew Jesus for the third time. Jesus looked at Peter and Peter, Jesus didn't say a word. He looked at Peter, and Peter remembered what the Lord said. He left the crowd, and he cried his eyes out. Can you relate? Have you ever done something and later felt such shame, such guilt, that it was crushing to you? That's how Peter felt. I feel pretty confident in saying that if Peter would have been alive today 
and we would have been the one that he had betrayed, we would have never let Peter ever forget what he had done to us. We would never give him a second chance to ever betray us again. We would rub his nose in it every chance we got. Peter, you were done. And yet Peter wasn't done. You see, Jesus came for sinners, not for saints. Jesus came to bring in those that others had written off. And Jesus came to bring forgiveness to those that others categorized as absolutely unforgivable. Jesus had a plan for Peter's life, and it wasn't to leave him at his lowest. It was to make him into a rock. So after Jesus died on the cross, after he spent three days in the tomb, was raised to life again by the power of God, Jesus sought out Simon Peter. Peter and some of the other disciples had gone back to the Sea of Galilee, and Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. Some of the other disciples said, we'll go with you. And while they were out on the Sea of Galilee, all night long fishing, they didn't catch a thing, couldn't catch a cold. And early the next morning, they saw a man on the shore. The man yelled, throw your nets out on the right side, find them. And they threw their nets out, and immediately their nets filled up to where they could barely pull them in. And then it dawned on them, it's the Lord. Peter tore off his work clothes. He dove into the Sea of Galilee and swam as hard and as fast as he could to get to Jesus. And after the rest of the disciples had pulled in the heavy load of fish, they noticed a fire with fish grilling on it. They gathered around the fire and Jesus gave them some bread, some grilled fish, and they were all amazed. And a little later in John 21, verse 15, we read, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He answered, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and they will lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Jesus said to him, follow me. Three times Peter had denied Jesus. And three times now Peter was given the opportunity to let the Lord know that he loved him. Did you notice? There is zero mention of what Peter had done. There was no lecture. There was no... I told you so. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Follow me. And for the rest of his life, Peter did just that. He followed the Lord. Until his dying day, when he was crucified in Rome by Emperor Nero, Peter followed Jesus. It is really interesting to me that when Peter wrote these two letters that you and I are going to be studying over the next several months, 
he begins and he ends with the bookends of grace. Of grace. Because Peter, like all followers of Jesus, who truly understand their relationship with the Lord, he was a recipient of the abundant, the undeserved grace of the Lord. There's no sweeter grace than the grace that comes to those who know that they are totally undeserving, that there is no way they could ever earn that grace. And it was this grace, the grace of Jesus, that totally transformed Peter's life. How extravagant is Jesus' grace? How absurd is Jesus' grace? Well, I wish Peter was here this morning to tell you firsthand. But I definitely know a story that he would tell you just to describe how radical this grace is. You see, after Peter had so miserably failed Jesus and so tenderly been restored, less than 50 days later, Peter was chosen to deliver the most important sermon ever given, the sermon that lit the fire that has never gone out to this very day. It happened on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, where people had gathered from far and near to celebrate and worship the Lord, God. Luke tells us the streets of Jerusalem were packed with people from Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, and as far away as Rome. There that day, there were Arabs and Cretans and Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and with such a, a crowd and such an important announcement to be delivered, who in the world would Jesus choose to deliver that message? Peter, Peter, Peter. You see, the Holy Spirit fell on the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, and they began to speak in all of the languages of that diverse crowd that gathered there that day. Everybody was amazed. They didn't know what to think of it. Finally, a group of people said, they're drunk. That's what it is. They're drunk. And at that moment, Peter stood up. And with the eleven, he raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And from that moment until the time that Peter sat down, he explained to that huge crowd about Jesus. About Jesus. What God had long foretold and promised. What Jesus had done and then what had been done to him. And that it was all part of one big plan of a sovereign God for salvation. And then Peter said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The sermon had been delivered. 
The Holy Spirit was moving among the crowd. Something unmistakable, unforgettable had taken place. Something that nobody who was present that day would ever be able to forget for the rest of their lives. And so the people began to ask, what should we do? Now that they had heard this news, what should we do? And boy, there is a great, great lesson in that for you and me. A lesson that I hope we will not miss this morning. You see, when God moves, when he speaks through his word, when he touches our heart, when he convicts us of some change he desires to make in our life, our response should be, what should I do? What should I do? It would be the greatest of all tragedies to come into the presence of God and to know that we are in the presence of God and to walk away unchanged and unfazed. There will always be an answer to that question, what should I do? Peter responded to their question. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And Luke tells us in Acts 2.41 that 3,000 people responded at that time. They came. They surrendered their life to Jesus. They, they followed him in baptism and they began to walk with God in Acts chapter 2. And by the time we come to Acts chapter 4, that number had risen to 5,000 people who were now followers of Jesus. Do you remember the question that was asked when they first heard the good news? What should we do? Well, the question asked for those who have become followers of Jesus would now be, how shall we live? Now that this decision has been made, Lord, how do you desire for us to live? And folks, the answer to that question is what you and I will be learning over the next several months as we work our way through First and Second Peter. I want us to read the first two verses of First Peter together, even though we're not going to begin to dig into them until our next time together. Read it with me. Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance." This letter was written near the end of Peter's life in the early 60s. Not the 1960s, but the, the 60s, the 60s A.D., while Peter was living in Rome. All of the early church fathers, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Tertullian, Eusebius, they all write about the martyrdom of Peter at the hands of Emperor Nero. Peter had followed Jesus for more than 30 years when he was executed in about 64, 65 A.D. by Nero. And near the end of his life, he sat down and he wrote these important letters to the followers of Jesus whom he calls exiles, strangers, foreigners living in Asia Minor, what today is Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Peter liked that description of Jesus' followers, but what does it mean to be an exile? 
What does it mean to be a foreigner or a stranger living in Asia Minor or in Oklahoma City? Well, we're going to talk much more about that next time. But let me simply say this. If you were a follower of Jesus and an exile, a foreigner living in Oklahoma City, you were different. It doesn't mean you are better or worse than anybody else, but it means that you are different. We have a different identity. We have a different purpose. We have a different orientation. We have a different disposition than those who are not followers of Jesus. I was reading something, a brother in Christ from India, who has been living in the United States for the past 40 years, wrote just this past week. He left his home in India and came to America to go to seminary more than 40 years ago. While he was here, he met his future wife and They got married and decided to make their home here. They began to have kids. And even though Emmanuel Christian, his wife Violet, and their family have lived in America for more than 40 years, he writes this. Listen to this. My wife and I are from India. We are aliens and foreigners in this country. No matter how long we live here, because of our skin color and the way we speak, we will always be treated as foreigners. Living as foreigners and aliens in a foreign culture has its own typical problems. Well, Emmanuel pointed out some visible differences that mark he and his wife as aliens and strangers. But Peter sees an even greater difference between those that he writes to and their surrounding culture. You see, Peter wrote to those who were living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of those under Roman rule. And yet, they were as diverse in their language and their customs as we are as a church. Edmund Clowney writes this. The geographical areas addressed include a fantastic conglomeration of territories. Coastal regions, mountain ranges, plateaus, lakes, and river systems. The inhabitants were even more diverse. They had different origins, ethnic roots, languages, customs, religions, and political history. And while we do not know what people, groups, or strata of society were included among the Christians of Asia Minor, we are struck by the unity that the gospel produced. Diverse as the backgrounds of these people were, they had become the new people of God, the family the chosen people scattered in the world. You see, the difference that you and I will discover as we work our way through First and Second Peter is their identity, their new identity because of their relationship to Jesus. A new identity that was based on social structures, not on ethnicity, nationality, language, politics, or economics, but on their having been chosen and set apart by God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Their new identity in Christ began for them a new way of living and a new way of understanding everything about the world around them. Peter writes, Praise be to God, praise be to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was their identity as Jesus' followers that served as the lens 
through which they saw themselves, through which they saw others, through which they understood the Roman government, the world around them, and all of their experiences in life. One of the focal points of Peter that we'll learn as we make our way is the topic of suffering. We learn about suffering and the persecution of the followers of Jesus in almost every book of the New Testament. It's something that we who are followers of Jesus in the United States find quite foreign. But it was prevalent in Peter's day. And suffering because of one's allegiance to Jesus is still prevalent around the world. As a matter of fact, some of you have come from countries where being a follower of Jesus will cost you. This past week, I learned about a brother in Christ, Armando Villadaris, who was born in Cuba, Eduardo's, your home country. And he was alive when Fidel Castro took over the country in 1959. He was a young man, just 23 years old. Armando was a poet. He wasn't a revolutionary. He wasn't an activist. But in 1960, at the age of 23, Fidel Castro had him put in prison because he would not say, I'm with Fidel. Armando spent the next 22 years of his life in prison because he refused to say those three simple words, I'm with Fidel. He was beaten. He was tortured. They threatened his wife. But he would not give in. All he had to do was say, I'm with Fidel. And they would have set him free. And we, many of us would say, why would it hurt? It would reunite you with your wife. But you see, for Armando, he was a follower of Jesus, not a follower of Fidel. 22 years later, after his wife Marta caught the ear of some U.S. Congress people, as well as the French president, Francois Mitterrand, Armando was released from prison. He resettled right here in the United States. And on May the 12th, 2016, Armando was given an award, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberties Canterbury Medal. The award is given every year to a person who embodies and lives out an unfailing commitment to religious freedom, someone who has resolutely and publicly refused to render under Caesar that which is due to God alone. And when he was presented the award, this is what Armando said. I am not an extraordinary man. I am quite ordinary. But God chose me for something quite extraordinary. When I was 23 years old, I refused to do something that at the time seemed very small. I refused to say a few words. I'm with Fidel. First, I refused the sign they wanted to put on my desk at the post office that said that. And then after years of torture and watching many fellow fighters die either in body or in spirit, I still refused to say those words. They did not keep me in jail for 22 years because my refusal to say three words meant nothing. In reality, those three words meant everything. For me to say those words would have constituted a type of spiritual suicide. Even though my body was in prison and being tortured, my soul was free and it flourished. 
My jailers took everything away from me, but they could not take away my conscience or my faith. Man, what a powerful testimony. How did Armando keep from losing his mind during those 22 years of being locked away, of being beaten and tortured? How did Armando stay strong so that he didn't finally stand and say, I'm with Fidel, just to get out of that pain and suffering? How do our brothers and sisters around the world, from some of the places where you've come from, how do they stay strong and keep from renouncing their faith and walking away from Jesus when they are threatened and ridiculed and forsaken by their friends and even their family members because of their allegiance to Jesus? And how did Peter stay strong when they began to run those nails into his wrist and his feet? I can answer for all of them. They kept their eyes on Jesus. And listen, that's not some little cliche. That's not some coffee mug slogan. The one who suffered for them, that is the one they stayed fixed upon. Not their aggressors, not their persecutors, not their killers, but the one who died for them. Peter wrote, how would your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. To this what? To this suffering for doing good and enduring it, that is to which you were called. Because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. I can't wait to walk through the pages of Peter's letter to these exiles and foreigners from so long ago with all of you over these next few months. Let me tell you, I've been reading First and Second Peter for several weeks now, just over and over and over again. And let me tell you, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be convicting as you and I learn what, it, learn what it means to be an exile and a foreigner living right here in Oklahoma City. And that is truly what he calls us to be. Exiles, strangers, right here in our own city. Before we go this morning, though, I want to take you back. I want to take you back to Pentecost. When all of those travelers who came to the temple to observe the day of Pentecost, when they heard the good news of Jesus, do you remember how they responded to that? What should we do? And that's the question I want to leave with you this morning. Now that you have heard the good news about Jesus, What will you do? Will you come to Jesus this morning? Will you surrender your life to him? Will you commit to follow him for the rest of your life? Or now that you've heard the good news, will you simply walk away? Don't walk away. Walk into his arms of grace and mercy and let him begin that same work in you that he began in that fisherman became a rock you see God's got a plan for your life as well and if you've never ever publicly professed your faith in Jesus I want to invite you to come forward to the front and give me your hand as you give Jesus your heart let me tell you there is no safer place in the world than right here surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ I know for many people you look around and you say oh man what will they think of me I'd be embarrassed 
Paul said, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. It's here in the body of Christ that he'll make you strong. If you need to surrender your life to Christ, come forward this morning. If you're already a follower of Jesus and you're looking for a church home, a place to plug in. Thanks for listening today. You can watch past sermons on our YouTube channel at Britain Church. We would love to see you on Sunday morning for one of our services at 8.30 or 10.40. Have a great week. Thank you.